Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. We're coming to you today with another In Between Seasons episode. Today we share with you the audio from a recent webinar we hosted called U.S. Immigration Basics. Our webinar host is Allison Ball, a member of EMM's Partners in Welcome community who graciously offered to share a virtual version of the U.S. immigration presentation she has presented widely. Allison provides an overview of U.S. immigration history, laws, and system. We've made it easy for you to follow along with the presentation by including a link to the PowerPoint slides in both the podcast notes and on our blog at episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash blog. We hope you enjoy this rich and informative presentation. Welcome everyone to today's webinar. Thank you so much for being here. We'll start with some short introductions and then we'll get started with today's content. My name is Allison Duval, and I'm the manager for church relations and engagement for Episcopal Migration Ministries. And I'm coming to you today from Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Kendall Martin. I'm EMM's communications manager and I'm located in Richmond, Virginia. Hi, I'm Rashad Thomas. I am the uh, policy advisor for migration policy for the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations, and I'm here in Washington, D.C. So before we get started, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about Partners in Welcome, Episcopal Migration Ministry's newest church engagement program. Partners in Welcome has two major facets at this point in its programmatic life. One is networking and mapping all of the ministries across the Episcopal Church that are working in the immigration, refugee, and asylum seeker space. So if you are part of such a ministry, please let us know. We would love to add you to the national map. The second major part of Partners in Welcome is an online learning portal, which is the platform through which we're offering today's webinar. We also offer interactive virtual workshops, online e-courses, a discussion forum, online events calendar, all manner of things. Um, so we really do hope and encourage you to join Partners in Welcome. It's free to join. Any individual can. EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash Partners in Welcome. Today's webinar is offered by a Partners in Welcome member, Allison Ball, who embodies so many of the values of Partners in Welcome. After getting involved in welcoming refugees in Virginia and Arizona, she developed a curiosity and desire to better understand the U.S. immigration system and in helping her friends to understand it as well. She spent many years studying and living into what we could consider a civic responsibility to understand in order to take informed action. Allison has given this presentation in many places on the ground, including at Episcopal congregations throughout the country. And we're very glad that she's offering today a virtual version of this presentation. So Allison, thank you so much for your generosity in preparing today's presentation. And I'm gonna turn it over to you. Great, thanks so much, Allison, for that introduction and for all of you for being here today. This is really a general educational presentation 
meant to give you a background in U.S. immigration so that you can take your time and when you hear the news, you can understand what's going on. I'm really not here to convince you of anything or to give you a point of view other than just a general basic understanding of our immigration system as it is today. So this is our agenda. I'm going to start with what I consider to be the heart of the matter. This is how does the U.S. decide who can visit our country and who can become a citizen of our country? We're going to take a closer look at the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice and see how these two organizations interact and manage the immigration system that we have today. And we're going to talk a little bit about the unauthorized residents. You may have heard the term uh, undocumented resident or illegal alien. I use the term unauthorized. Oftentimes these folks are not undocumented, but they are not authorized to live in the U.S. So we'll talk about those populations. I'll give you a quick overview of my state, Virginia, and our immigration uh, overview. And at the end, when after the webinar, you'll be receiving information that will allow you to create your own state statistical overview if you're interested. So that's today's agenda, and we'll move ahead. So this is the beginning. This is a pretty confusing slide, or it's, it basically divides the, the two questions up. Who can come to the U.S. and who can become a U.S. citizen? And these are just the highlights, in my opinion, of our history. You may remember from our, your studies in school that in 1882, we had a Chinese Exclusion Act. This was really the first travel ban, which barred Chinese laborers from coming into the U.S. In 1917, during World War I, we started literacy testing for immigrants, just people entering the U.S., but we also barred people coming in from Asia. These were people with whom we were at war, all the way from Turkey, if you think of your globe, all the way from Turkey around to Indonesia, we did not let people come to the U.S. in 1914, in 1917. The Immigration Act of 1924 was quite significant. This was the first beginning of our national or federal legislation related to quotas and who could come to the U.S. At this point, what we said was, we will allow people to come to the U.S. in the same percentage as our existing population. And what this meant was, because most of our people in the country at that time were from Northern Europe, we allowed people to come from Northern Europe, but we did not allow people to come from other parts of the world. And we started creating visas. So this was the first time that we said, people cannot just come here and become citizens automatically. We were going to limit those who could become citizens starting in 1924. Now, this law was quite controversial, particularly around the world. The U.S. was perceived as quite racist, and the fact that we did not allow people from other countries or other parts of the world to come here and visit us or to become citizens after 1924, we, be, we were becoming quite criticized for this law. So in 1965, around the time of civil rights, we passed another significant act, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which started our current system of federal immigration, which said, we're going to have a family and skills preference system. 
So what this did was it put caps on the number of people who could come from each country and it broadened the geography of those people who were coming into the country and becoming our citizens. We'll see this in the next slide a little bit more clearly, but this again is an overview. Just who are we allowing to come to the US? And remember that until 1924, pretty much everyone who came could become a citizen. So if we look down on the second part of this slide, we see that very early on, if you were a free white person and you lived here for two years, you could become a citizen. Same with the naturalization law of 1802. We said all immigrants can become citizens if they report and register. You came into the country, you reported to your local county official, and then in five years you returned and you registered and you became a citizen of the country. So very easy to become a citizen at the, in those early years. If you're familiar with our Southwestern history, you know that after the, the uh, Mexican-American War in 1848 and after the purchase of the Gadsden Purchase in 1854, we allowed anyone who was in the territory that we took over at that time, we allowed them to become citizens of the U.S. This was a Mexican territory. These were Mexican citizens, but we gave folks the option to become U.S. citizens at that point. 1868 was a significant year with the 14th Amendment, because at that amendment, at that time, after the Civil War, what we said was all persons born or naturalized in the U.S. are citizens. Again, this is a very significant basis of our laws. While this, law, this amendment was, was meant for the African Americans after the Civil War, what it said was anyone who is born here is a citizen. Now you'll see just under that, we, there are two different kinds of citizenship in the world. Most of the countries in the Western Hemisphere, as we are, have use solely. They are the right of the soil. If you're born here, you are a citizen. These are countries when they were first colonized and first populated, were encouraging people to come to the country and to, to populate these nations. So what we said was, if you're born here, then you can be a citizen here. Most of the rest of the world follows a different system. You sanguinis is the right of the blood. It says, I am who my parents are. Now, most European countries use this system, this you sanguinis, the right of the blood. So it's a contrast to our system. However, Countries like Germany and France are starting to realize that as they get folks coming from other countries, for example, Germany has a lot of people coming in to work from Turkey, and as those Turkish folks marry each other and have children, those children are also Turkish by law. They're not, they're not becoming German citizens, even though they go to German schools and uh, speak perfect German. So countries like Germany and France are starting to relax their laws, their use sanguinis laws, knowing that it's probably good in the long run to have folks who live in the country who are or can become citizens. And then in 1924, we, have a, we agreed to allow Native Americans 
who were born in the U.S. to be citizens at that point. But again, this is the heart of the matter, who can come to the U.S. and who can become a U.S. citizen. Uh, this talks about what I had mentioned before. Each of these columns represents one decade, starting in 1820 to 1829, and goes all the way to 2000 to 2009. And if you just see the trajectory here, that we had quite a bit of immigration through, especially in that's 1900 to 1909, that very large column in the middle. And then there was a drop off in the early 1900s because we had the Great Depression. There wasn't enough money for people to move around. But if you match the countries in the globe on the top part with the, with the columns, what you'll see is that before that 1924 law, predominantly we had people coming to us from Europe and then some from Canada and South America. But that afterwards and since the 1900s and later, we have gotten more and more diverse populations coming from not only Europe, but uh, Central and South America, but some from Africa and some from Asia. And you'll see why in a minute. But in part, it was because of the change in that law from 1924 that changed 1965, where we actually diversified where we were taking folks from because we put caps on those countries and we no longer took predominantly from Europe. What we're going to talk about here again is those same two questions, the heart of the matter. Now there's a lot of information on this slide, but I'll just go through it uh, slowly. If you look at the key, if I've put an L next to something, it means that this is codified in our federal laws. If I've put an X, it means that this is the result of an executive order. And the star means that there's a, a, an actual legal annual cap put on this number. Now, the U.S. In, uh, immigration laws today, there are about 180 different visas that someone can get. On the right-hand side, path to citizenship, there are about 100 different visas that you can get. On the left-hand side, there are about 80 different visas that you can have if you're visiting our country. And what I've done is just to combine these here to make it a little easier for you to understand. There's a big difference between those people who come here temporarily and those who have a pathway to citizenship. This is the chart, just conceptually, that I'd like you to remember in the future, because when you hear the news or you you hear of some group of people, think to yourself, now are those people on the left-hand side of the chart and they're only here temporarily or on the right-hand side past to citizenship? We're gonna go through each one of these uh, just so you can hear a little bit more about these categories. On the left-hand side, we take about 900 million visitors per year. Most of those visitors are travel or business visas and we have about 7 million of those per year. We issue about uh, 800,000 student or exchange visas per year who, who are coming here maybe on a one-year, three-year, five-year student visas to study something. We also have about 180,000 specialty worker visas. These are not, none of these people on the left have a pathway to citizenship. 
you may have heard of the H1B or the H2A. H1B is a high-skilled, full-time worker. They might be a computer worker or a medical worker. They are here on a visa that's probably a three-year visa. It may be renewed once, so they may be here for six years. There's a slight chance at the end of that H-1B that they might be able to convert that to a path to citizenship, but that's the only option from the left-hand side of this chart from a visitor to become someone who has a pathway to citizenship. H-2A and H-2B are temporary seasonal workers. H-2As are agricultural workers, people who uh, pick our vegetables or our fruits around the country in many, many states hire H-2A temporary workers. H-2B is a seasonal or temporary worker that's non-agricultural. These are specialty workers of certain kinds, people who I know in Maryland shuck oysters. That would be a specialty skill that we look for people from the outside, but temporary seasonal. And the next line, there are about 300,000 temporary protected status. Later on in the presentation, I'll show you the list of countries from where those people come. But uh, these are people who came here based generally on natural disasters, tsunamis or earthquakes, and couldn't stay uh, in their countries of origin and they've come here, people from Central America and the Caribbean. As I said, you'll see that list of countries later on. Now, this is, these are given uh, temporary protected status. These people are given this status by law, but there is an option for the president every year to sign an executive order that allows them to stay for another year or so based on the safety of their country of origin. And so what we've seen in the news recently is that President Trump has said that some of these protected statuses need to be not renewed this year, and what that would be doing is sending folks home. So that's a, it been in the news quite a bit, as has the last in the column, which is the DACA. This is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. These are people from all over the world who have come here as children. They've either been with parents who have had visas, but basically they have overstayed their visa and there is no protection for these children. So President Obama signed an executive order that allowed these people who are in this uh, position uh, to come forward and apply for this DACA status, which allows them to, be, to go to schools here locally, to uh, get their driver's licenses, get permission to work, et cetera. There is no pathway to citizen currently for these folks. It is being discussed in the court system uh, and, and Trump has, has asked to, to stop the DACA and it remains to be seen in the Supreme Court whether the, this program will continue or not. So that's again on the left, those folks who are here temporarily. On the right hand side, we have pathways to citizenship. We make about 750,000 folks uh, citizens every year. Most of those, as I said before, based on our federal laws, are family members who have people who live in the states, and there's a tiers, there are tiers of uh, permissions, but most of them are family workers. 
<clears throat> the second category there is the EB work permits, about 140,000 of those per year. And these are high-skilled high labor. Unlike the left-hand column, the specialty worker visa, the EB work permits are folks with PhDs uh, and, and uh, strategic knowledge that we want to have on our, on, our, uh, on our side. And so we've hired the, these people to come and we've given them pathways to citizenship. Another controversial area is the diversity lottery. This is about 50,000 people per year from a wide range of countries where we don't have representation from them or haven't had enough of them in the past. Again, this is a, an issue that Trump is questioning whether we should continue. Refugees as an organization, or refugees is a group uh, that comes here every year. And these are folks who are around the world who are no longer living in their countries of origin, but they have been persecuted or they fear persecution based on their race or religion or their specialty group. I do work with the International Rescue Committee here in Charlottesville, Virginia. We settle currently in this year, the target is 30,000 folks. Again, this category is, is determined by a federal law the X is there because there is a, an executive order every year, and we're waiting for the number to come out right now for President Trump to say how many people we will take in the next fiscal year, and we'll see how that changes over time. The special immigrant visa is another category, another pathway to citizenship from just two countries. Uh, special immigrant visas come from only Afghanistan and Iraq. These are people who've worked with our armed services or another arm of our government, and they uh, are at great risk if they stay in their country of origin. So we are allowing them to come here with a pathway to citizenship on a special immigrant visa. Now the asylee is also another category with a pathway to citizenship. An asylee is, is someone who comes uh, rather than like the refugee who's in a second country, they're not in their country of origin, but they're in another country, uh, the asylees, by contrast, are those people who are standing on our soil. So these are people who we see at our southern border, for example. They're also folks who defect as uh, they might come with a dance troupe or they might come with a basketball team and they come to our country and they ask for asylum. They're standing on our, on our soil, but they're saying, I'm being persecuted at home and I need to, to be here and I'm asking you to give me asylum. So right now we're seeing the largest group of asylees or asylum seekers coming from the southern border. And that number 20 to 30,000 is an approximate number of how many asylees we might make and give asylum to each year. And it's about 10% of the total number who have asked for asylum. So there's a long process of uh, uh, there are, uh, immigration in the immigration courts, asylum seekers go before a judge. And it's quite a, a long involved proof to prove that this person has been persecuted in their home country and cannot return. So that, again, is just one of the examples of people that we give a pathway to citizenship to 
And as I said before, this is the chart uh, that I hope you'll remember in the future as you hear the news. Where does this person fit? Is the, are we talking about a group of people with or without a pathway to citizenship? So we're going to go to the next slide. We're going to pick up the pace just a little bit here. I'm going to talk about how the government gets involved in our immigration courts and in, our, in, in the processes and procedures. Department of Homeland Security, as you recall, was formed after 9-11. These were groups that were part of the Department of Justice until then. The other big organizations within the Department of Homeland Security are FEMA and the Coast Guard. The others are these right here related to immigration. Customs and Border Protection is at the ports of entry. If you've ever flown in uh, from overseas, the people that go through your luggage, the people who are taking you through the ports of entry, they're coming in from Canada or Mexico, are Customs and Border Protection. A part of that is the Border Patrol. Uh, when I'm down at the border in Arizona, we see Border Patrol agents, they're basically policing between the ports of entry. They're through there in Arizona throughout the desert. They are in border checkpoints that we see as we drive around in Mexico, but they are trying to prevent people from coming between the ports of entry. Now ICE, if you're living throughout the country, you may be familiar with ICE. They not only operate throughout the US, they're the people that we hear about doing the raids on the workplaces, or the raids uh, in various places around the country. They also manage our detention centers, which we will talk about in a minute. They have about 200 or 20,000 employees and 400 offices now around the nation. And then we have the naturalization service, which uh, does all the naturalization ceremonies of all those folks who are getting their citizenship who've gone through the process uh, to become U.S. citizens. So that just gives you a sense of the money that's being spent by the different organizations that are part of this. So the next slide talks about detention centers. These, as I said, are, ma are managed by ICE, and these statistics come from the, the National Immigration and Justice Center. Immigration detention centers are really a network of hundreds of facilities around the country there are some that are for-profit, there are some that are managed by the federal government, and the federal government in some cases uh, leases space from local jurisdictions. So in some jurisdictions, this is quite a large moneymaker uh, for some of our local counties to supply beds and space for immigration. The one example I like to cite is this, co this company called CoreCivic which has about 128 facilities nationwide. And it is, this stock of Core Civic is traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So this is a pure for-profit organization that is doing work as uh, the federal government outsources to this for-profit organization. In November of 2017, this National Immigrant Justice Center did a, a study and 71% of the detainees were held in privately operated facilities. So again, this is a large money maker for many people. At that time, we were paying 30 to $169 per day for inmate. And you can see the average number of beds per day in the last few years 
and how that has gone up and up. And even if you think of the average being about $100 per day per inmate at 50,000 people in that day, the U.S. government spends $5 million a day to house these people. So this is just gives you a sense of what is going on at the detention centers. The next slide we'll look at, it will talk about the Department of Justice and the immigration courts. Now, this was a very interesting part of the study that I did, and I did not realize that immigration is a civil matter, and there's no requirement for there to be legal representation for people who are going through the immigration courts. What these courts decide is that whether the immigrant is removable, meaning deportable, or whether there is any relief from removal. So this is a very large uh, and complicated legal requirement that these courts look at and these judges are looking at. But as I said, there's no requirement for legal representation, which is why some of you, you may have seen pictures of young children standing before judges with no uh, lawyer with them because there's no requirement, even though there are quite a few organizations trying to give pro bono uh, support for these, uh, these people who are going through these court cases. We have about 58 courts and about 424 judges. I just heard this morning that we don't have 890,000 cases backlog, but closer to over a million now cases that are backlogged. People are either waiting in detention, in the detention facilities, or they've bonded out. In some cases, uh, there's a hearing that ICE hears and people can pay to get out of detention or they're waiting uh, on the economy, in some cases wearing a ankle bracelet so that they don't are sure that they will show up to the court cases. But there are about a million cases now in backlogged. The other thing that was interesting, of course, that these courts sit within the Department of Justice, and there is a, a union of the judges, in immigration judges, who would prefer that the courts no longer reside within the Department of Justice so that they are no longer uh, needing to fit the requirements of the politics of the day but can stand independently outside of the executive branch, which would be the Department of Justice. Uh, the appeals system is interesting. The appeal, the first appeals court is also within the Department of Justice. President Trump's administration is trying to make some administrative changes in those appeals court, but the, the next appeals level would be the circuit courts, and then the next uh, level after that would be the Supreme Court. So. You, there is an opportunity to appeal through the Department of Justice and out to the circuit courts. And you often see immigration issues being discussed in the, at this level of the Supreme Court. We'll turn now to our, our last topic, which is to really talk about these unauthorized. This looks at the total number of immigrants and sort of how they break down. That blue section in the right of the 42.5, uh, 45.2 million immigrants in our country, about 44% have become naturalized citizens. So a naturalized citizen is someone who has gone through the process, they've taken the test, they've gone through the interview, and they've become citizens. 
And other than not being able to be president, they really have all the rights of any citizen like you or I who were born here. The naturalized citizen has the same rights and legal, legal rights as any citizen of the U.S. The orange section is what we call lawful permanent residence. Now, that's the same thing as a green card. You may recall from our, uh, from our chart of who can visit and who is a citizen. The, the green card comes in the process of becoming a citizen. Generally, you come into the country with a certain kind of visa based on your, your requirements and your background. You then are converted to a green card and you have that green card for four or five years at which point you have the option to become a citizen or not. Uh, anyone with a green card can keep the green card as long as they want. They don't need to become citizens or they have the option to apply to become a citizen. So again, these, this orange section on this chart refers to those people with green cards. They could apply to become a naturalized citizen, but they don't have to. The temporary lawful residents are those people we talked about with temporary visas. These are folks who are here on study visas, they're here on work visas, they're here residing with their families. So these are people who are here lawfully, but for temporary reasons only. And then we have about a quarter of the total who are unauthorized, and those are the ones we're gonna talk about next. So again, I wanted to see uh, the difference of how we changed our unauthorized residents over time. Were there major changes? There aren't too many major changes. From 1990, you'll see we had three and a half million unauthorized. That was 1% of our population at the time. The 2013, uh, quite a bit later, we are now up to 11 million unauthorized, and that's 3.4% of our population. So on average, in every state in the country, we have about 3.4 or 3.5% of the population is unauthorized. From a, a countries of origin perspective, you can see that the blue is Mexico, and that's really going down. I read an article the other day, this is a 2013 number, and I read an article the other day that said that they are now less than 50% of our total. We actually have few, we have more Mexicans leaving our country now than are coming into our country. The big change that you'll notice maybe is the, the yellow sliver, the Asian sliver going from 9% to 14%. And we're gonna see on the next slide why that is. Why did we have such an uptick in the number of Asians who are here as unauthorized residents. So let's turn to that next slide. This is a, a something that I really wasn't aware of. When we think about the unauthorized, we often think about the border crossers coming from the southern border. But what we don't think about often is, and I certainly hadn't, is the number of overstayers. So this chart basically shows you the difference. We have border crosses on the left, entry without inspection is the official title, and they're 58% of the total, or about 6.4 million people. But we also have visa overstayers, people who come here on work visas, or tourist visas, or work, or a school, or education visas, 
and who just overstay the visa. So when we think about something like a border and a wall, a border wall as a solution to the unauthorized problem, we know right away that almost half of that problem will not be solved by the border. It's just something to think about as we look for options down the road. A little bit more information about the unauthorized residents. Again, this, this were, these were things that surprised me. Two-thirds have lived in the U.S. 10 years or longer, and quite a large percentage of the remainder have been here 20 years or longer. These people have been living here for quite a while. Uh, 16 million people in the U.S. Lived in, live in mixed-status families. That means we have some people in the family who are citizens and some people in the family who are unauthorized. There are 200,000 mixed status marriages and many, many U.S. children have been born to one or both unauthorized parents based on that 14th Amendment that we talked about. Two recent uh, immigration laws at the federal level focus on the unauthorized, and I wanted to just mention these. 1986, during Reagan's time, we had what was passed at the time, Immigration Reform and Control Act. This was a regularization or a granting of amnesty, and at that time, there were about 3 million unauthorized in the country. So there was a federal law that said, if you come forward, if you pay a certain fine, if you have certain requirements, if you meet certain requirements and you want to become a citizen, you can apply to become a citizen. At the time, uh, Reagan uh, agreed with Congress, if you please just allow me to do this amnesty, then you can have your immigration reform and, and we'll be good to go. So that was the agreement. We just never quite got around to changing the immigration laws. But at that time, three million people that were unauthorized became U.S. citizens. There were two parts. There was an agricultural piece and a non-agricultural piece. The other thing that Reagan did was he wrote, he signed an executive action that also allowed the children of the unauthorized who became citizens to become citizens. There was no provision for the children in the law, but he signed an executive action that did that as well. He also imposed for the first time in 1986 criminal penalties for those who were hiring the unauthorized so that there was some teeth behind the federal laws that allowed people to be prosecuted as hirers of the unauthorized, not just uh, going after those who were the unauthorized themselves. In 1996, Clinton passed what was called the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act. Now, this was quite onerous and added many, many uh, dimensions that were negative for the unauthorized. The one that I'm most familiar, familiar with is that the unauthorized must exit the U.S. if they apply for citizenship. So what this did was it said if you're already living here as an unauthorized person, there is no pathway for citizenship for you unless you're willing to return for your, to your home country for 10 years. Even if you have married a U.S. citizen, you cannot become a citizen of the U.S. You're still illegal, and you, there's no way for you to even get a visa to live here unless you go back to your country of origin for 10 years. And also, this was the law 
that allow the Department of Homeland Security to waive any kind of environmental issues or reviews if we want to build a border. So this makes it easier for the federal government to build borders without the, the proper or the typical environmental reviews that might we might normally have required. So those were the recent changes that affected the unauthorized. So you, uh, you probably are familiar with this. Why do Central Americans and Mexicans come here? They come to make money. Uh, we had a very good Bracero program from 42 to 64. We had half a million people coming per year at the peak. The program was canceled in 64, but it wasn't replaced. You'll notice the numbers of folks in the temporary side, only 180,000 now are allowed in. So there, we have a higher need than what we're actually allowing by law. And they come for safety. Uh, we've talked about our ability to take refugees in as, also, as well as asylum seekers. This is all based on the U.S. being a signatory to uh, the 1967 protocol, which was an update of the 51 Refugee Convention. We then went back and mim mimicked those international conventions in our own laws so that the U.S. has their own laws that they passed and the Refugee Act of 1980. And what this says is we will allow you to ask for asylum anywhere without taking you into detention, and we will not return you to danger. And today, if we delved into the details of how we are treating those who are coming from Central America into the U.S. and asking for asylum, we would be violating all three of those rules that we have signed in, in the protocol and that we've passed in our own laws. Uh, the, the note on the bottom of this slide is a small note, but I think it's quite con con, uh, significant. And it's something that I wasn't as aware of as maybe I should have been, that the U.S. currently and uh, historically destabilized uh, economically and politically many of the Central American countries that we're talking about. We have a significant influence in the region, and we have definitely used that influence and it's quite clearly linked to what's happening in those countries, which is causing the northward migration. So it's as we look to solutions to this issue, it's important to keep that in mind. We've talked about most of these recent changes. This is just a list of the countries that are in the current travel ban. These were executive orders that were signed by President Trump. I think there were three. This was the third of three. Eventually, this did go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided that the president did have the authority to prevent people from certain countries from coming here, and that's what the travel ban did. So they upheld his travel ban at the time, and this that's what's in effect right now. DACA is also in question. President Trump tried to cancel DACA. He was sued for canceling it. He was sued for having it. So he's sort of caught in between, but this is undecided and it will be going to the Supreme Court soon and heard whether it can continue or not. The other issue that's uh, still pending is the temporary protected status. Those are the countries and the approximate numbers of people who are protected under this system. And keep in mind that they also have had U.S. citizen children in the time that they've lived here. 
Uh, you may have remembered in May of 2018, the zero tolerance policy saying that we, as people were coming across our border, we were gonna maximize the criminal charges. We were gonna detain as many as we could. And then there are some changes happening just in our procedures with our US citizen and immigration services. And one of those that's quite controversial is the public services test, which has been a part of our law for many years. What it basically says, if we think someone is now or could be in need of uh, public services, we will not allow them to either get green cards or become citizens in the process. So that's one administrative change that's quite significant. And uh, many of the USCIS offices that were overseas that were facilitating people becoming U.S. citizens uh, on the family side as well as on the asylum side uh, have been closed, and those that functionality has been transferred to the Department of Justice. So again, there are many, many changes happening right now to alter our U.S. immigration system. This is just an overview of Virginia. I generally use it for folks in Virginia. One of the things we're going to do at the end of this presentation is to send you a booklet that I've written that helps you understand more about the immigration system. These are videos you can watch and articles you can read. And one of the pages talks about your state laws and your state statistics. So all of these uh, statistics you'll be able to find if you use that booklet for your own state. But basically, Virginia sort of mimics the, the nation as far as its percentage of immigrant population as well as its unauthorized. That shows you the number of DACA residents that live here. What's the percentage of our residents as a percent of the labor force? 4.7 is the national average. About 4% of your state probably is the labor force is probably unauthorized residents. Our immigration court here in Virginia is in Arlington. We have 15 judges. We have uh, detention centers in the, in the state, and this just lists those and shows you that a couple of those are privately owned. One is owned by the federal government. And then there's uh, quite an interesting, to the 287 agreement is part of that 1996 law that uh, President Clinton signed. And basically what it says is, we, the federal government uh, enters into an agreement with local authorities so that those local uh, authorities, those local police or, or sheriffs can administer immigration law as if they were a federal agent. So these are complicated agreements and money is changing hands. But in the state of Virginia, we know that there are three agreements where this is taking place. And it would just be of interest perhaps to, for you to uh, take a look who in your state has these agreements. It just helps you understand the landscape of where things are. So on the next slide, we'll, let, we'll wrap up with just a few more uh, issues of what you can do. I, I hope that this has been a, a good basis for your learning about immigration. Some of this you may have been familiar with already. I hope you've learned something new. There's all kinds of things you can do locally. Again, you'll be receiving the booklet uh, by email to list some of the things you can do. We would encourage you to look at any kind of local or national organizations related to immigration, especially, especially Episcopal Migration Ministries 
and the Partners in Welcome organization is a great one. If you haven't already joined, I would encourage you to do that. And the Episcopal Public Policy Network, we're going to hear from Rashad a little bit more about that, uh, but we'd love to have you be a participant in that and get their newsletter to stay abreast of the issues. So with that, I'll turn it back to the folks uh, at Partners in Welcome and EMM, but uh, thanks for being here, and I will look forward to the Q&A, which is going to start in a few minutes. So thank you very much. Thank you, Allison. That was a great presentation. Hello, everyone. My name is Rashad Thomas. I am the policy advisor for migration issues for the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. And I'm just going to give you an overview of who we are, what we do, how we serve the church, and how you can partner with us and get involved with Episcopal public advocacy, public policy advocacy as well. So first, who, who are we? OGR is the voice of the Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., and everything that, that that involves. So that means we are the church's official representatives to the United States federal government, so to Congress, to the administration, and also to the wider policy community here in D.C. Basically, what we do um, is that we advocate for the church's values and positions here in Washington, D.C., in the policy space. Um, so all of those positions and whatnot that we take as a church are determined by our general convention, which meets every three years, or sometimes um, in the interim by the executive council, which governs the church at the executive level between general convention. You can find all of the policies and the resolutions that have been passed by general convention on the church's website. And we hew very, very closely to the policies that general convention passes. So if General Convention does, has not said anything about it, we don't advocate on it, but whatever General Convention has given us to advocate on, that's what we advocate on. So we also, out of OGR, run the Episcopal Public Policy Network, which is basically our grassroots element. This is how we try to um, empower ordinary Episcopalians throughout the country to collaborate in our work, to advocate before their members of Congress, both here in DC and in their local communities, for the, the values of the church in the public policy space. So there are a number of things you can do to stay informed about these issues. You can study church teachings on public policy issues, and those there's these are all hyperlinks on the PowerPoint that you'll receive. So you can just click and, and be led to the link. You can subscribe to EPPN alerts. These are periodic alerts that we send out to our network on pending issues before Congress. You can go to the link and basically fill in your information and it will generate the, the letter that we've created that you can email to your congressman or your senator on whatever issue it is that is the topic of the alert. Um, and then you can also follow EPPN on Facebook and Twitter. We have very active social media, so we're constantly updating that and providing uh, folks with information about what's going on here on the Hill and how you can participate. And then also, of course, use your voice. And that's a, that's a, a large part of what I just said. Send out emails to your representatives and senators. It's very, very important to participate in local and national advocacy. You can go to your, your local district office of your congressman or your state office for your senator, talk to their staff, sometimes even talk to them and tell them how you feel about all the issues that you care about, um, particularly immigration and, and refugees, very important to us as a church. 
So we always encourage you to engage in advocacy um, in person as well. And we are able to help you to do that, to know how to go into a meeting with member of Congress or their staff and, and you know, talking points and how, how um, all that sort of thing goes basically. And then also the last thing I want you to do is pray, hope, and take action. It's one of my favorite sayings. So, you know, we, everything we do has to be um, saturated in prayer because we, all that we do comes from the Lord. He's given us everything and we are to be his hands and feet um, in the world. So that's at the heart of our ministry here on Capitol Hill. And we hope that it's a part of your ministry as well. And always have hope. There are a lot of things going on in the immigration and refugee space that we as Episcopalians do not agree with, but um, we know that no matter what happens here in Congress and in Washington, Jesus is still on the throne. So we just have to keep our eyes focused on him and um, know that in our, in our small way, all we can do is try to live out the gospel call that the Lord gives to us. So. Um, thank you very much, and I'll hand it over to Allison. Thank you so much, Rashab. So we're going to very quickly share with you some upcoming opportunities with Episcopal Migration Ministries through the Partners and Welcome Program. Um, so a little promo for you before we get into questions. Um, over to you, Kendall. Sure, thanks. So we have a Supporting Asylum Seekers, a toolkit for congregations, um, and you will have the link where you may request it. And we hope and pray that this toolkit empowers you and your congregation to discern and live into the ministry of welcome to which you are uniquely called, and that it inspires you to continue building a relationship with EMM in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. If you have a ministry model to share, a story to tell, a case study to offer, suggested edits, or any other items that should be included in future editions of Supporting Asylum Seekers, a toolkit for congregations, we would welcome that information. So please do reach out to us. And we have a virtual workshop scheduled for November 7th with the Reverend Twyla Smith and Louisa Merchant, both of whom have been founders and actively involved in running refugee ministries out of their home congregations. The title of the workshop is What Now? Building Community Partnerships for a Changing Refugee Ministry. So we very much hope you'll join uh, virtual workshops or interactive small group experiences, and they're limited to 12 participants. So please do make sure you check out this link and sign up if you'd like to be part of that day. And now we're gonna move into some Q&A. So the first question that's come up is, last I heard the administration was talking about a PD of zero. Are you hearing anything more about the FY 2020 PD? Yes, yeah, so that there have been rumors that the administration is considering reducing the presidential determination for refugee admissions down to zero. So this is in law, the, the administration or the president has the power to decide how many refugees we bring in each year. And as you may know, over the course of the last several years, the number of refugees um, that we've admitted annually, uh, the presidential determination um, has been significantly reduced each year. I think the first fiscal year that President Trump was in charge of the determination it dropped to 50,000. And then in the second year, which was FY19, it dropped to 30,000. And that's the fiscal year we're in currently. So that's the rumor. We are actively engaging aggressively to ensure that the, the target does not drop below 30,000. But um, unfortunately, at the end of the day, the, the person with the final say on this is President Trump 
and you know we, we're, we're doing everything we can to with working with our partners to ensure that the number doesn't reduce below thirty thousand. But we will take whatever whatever comes and and work on it as best we can. Thank you for the question. Thanks, Rashad. And next question. Regarding the immigration court union that would prefer not to sit within the DOJ, what does it mean, as she said, to fit the requirements of the politics of the day and stand outside the executive branch? Okay, so we, we know that there are three branches of government, right? We have the executive branch, which is the president, which includes all of, of the departments like Department of Justice, Department of Energy, Department of Education, all those departments, that's the executive branch. We generally have the, the legislative branch, which is the Senate and the Congress, and then we have the judicial branch, which is the court systems. In this case, we know immigration courts sit within the Department of Justice. So as the Department of Justice becomes more politicized, like Jeff Sessions was the one who said we wanted the, to have zero tolerance in our dealings with these asylum seekers. And we wanted to deal the heaviest blow that we could to anybody who was crossing our border and coming into our country. So because the courts are within the Department of Justice, this attorney general used to be Jeff Sessions, now it's Barr, they get to decide, well, we want the judges to rule this way. We want the judges to look at situations this way. We want the judges to review 700 cases a year or they won't get a satisfactory review. This is politicizing these judges. And the union of the judges is saying, look, we want to adhere to the law. We don't want to have to speed things up. We don't want to have to cut corners. We don't want to have to do anything that doesn't provide due process to the people who are going through our courts. They're trying to administer the laws, but unfortunately, as we go further into this, the uh, Department of Justice and the Attorney General is making decisions about how they can rule on these court cases, which is tying their hands from actually adhering to the law. So that's how it's becoming more politicized. Hopefully that clarifies things a little bit. Thank you, Allison. Mm -hmm. Someone else said, I also would like to know about the PD for FY2020 and also other policy developments as they happen. I find it hard to track this kind of thing through the news media. Is there a better resource for tracking that kind of thing? Mm. That's a really good question. I know of no way to track this, although I can name one uh, source. If you go to the immig uh, National Immigration Forum and you sign up there's a, a daily newsletter by a, gain, by, uh, by a gentleman named Ali Nurani. This is also in the booklet, but it's the National Immigration Forum, the daily newsletter from Ali Nurani. There's also one, Rashad, that you might be familiar with, which comes out from the same group, National Immigration Forum, but it's their, it's their federal legal alert. And that tells you everything that Congress is talking about federally plus some local statewide, but this Ali Narani generally looks at federal, some international, and some state-specific, but I read this every day to try to stay current, but it's very hard to, to stay current. But that's, that's, um, those were, are two good sources I would recommend. I would also add 
EPPN does do periodic immigration updates as well, so you should definitely be on our mailing list. Um, and then another one that I find really helpful comes from the Center for Migration Studies. They send out a weekly email that has lots of, uh, or basically all of the, you know, the relevant things that are going on um, from the previous week. So uh, Center for Migration Studies is another good um, source as well. And the Partners in Welcome has, a, I think, a weekly, right, Alice? And maybe you can, because that's a really great one, too, your list. That's what I was going to add, is that um, our contractor who works on Partners in Welcome is a research librarian, and so curates news from across the media spectrum about immigration issues. And often, we're highlighting things from the Episcopal Public Policy Network as well um, to make sure that we're kind of wrapping around all these resources together. So um, in your follow-up email, folks, you'll get our recommendation that you join Partners in Welcome for free. Um, and you do get those weekly news digests that you can stay subscribed to or you can unsubscribe if you find the frequency a little much. Thank you. Next question, what is the typical penalty for organizations that hire unauthorized workers or pay less than the prevailing wage? Mm. I think it's two separate questions. I don't know about the issue of paying less than the prevailing wage or the minimum wage. I don't know about that. The hiring of the unauthorized workers, as we learned, starting in 1996 or 1986 with that law, they could be also targets of lawsuits. However, what happened at that point was that people started using con contractors or consultants to hire workers for them. So they basically are hiding behind the fact that, hey, I didn't hire these workers, I have this person who's screening workers on my behalf, and I'm just taking their word for it, or I'm taking these documents which look normal and proper, but maybe fake documents. So there's, there are, there's very little uh, prosecutions of these employers, which doesn't seem quite fair, but that's the way, that's what's happening. I mean, there, there is some prosecution, but little because they've been able to get around this system and say, well, I'm, I'm hiring people with proper documents and I, I've, I can't use E-Verify. There is a national system called E-Verify, but there's no teeth in the law that says that they have to use those, uh, that system in order to verify that someone is here legally. So we haven't really tightened up the laws and the procedures around this issue as much as we could, in my opinion. Right, that's one of the, um, the complications of the employment, employer enforcement side of federal immigration law is that it's just a lot easier for, for ICE to enforce immigration laws against individuals seeking employment or who are employed um, without authorization than it is for them to crack down on businesses that hire undocumented people because the E-Verify system is not mandatory, and it's just it's just a matter of resources and like all things like you know in in any sort of law enforcement situation, resources is always an issue. Like you you can't, especially given the large size of the undocumented population, you know these this is literally millions of people who are working in our country today who don't have authorization. The federal government does not have the capacity to to crack down and round up that many people and and make sure that they're not working like it's just not it's it's just not possible they're scarce resources so enforcement priorities is a is a 
aspect of immigration enforcement that we try to stress, like you need to prioritize the, the immigrants who are not, or the undocumented people who are actually a threat to like public safety, to, you know, local communities, that sort of thing, going after farm workers and, and nannies and, you know, construction workers. I mean, you can do that, but like given the scarce amount of resources that you have to fulfill your mandate to enforce immigration law internally, we think you should prioritize basically. Is participation in the 2020 census a risk for immigrant undocumented mixed families? Um, I'll take that one. Under federal law, well actually really under the constitution, um, not just statute law, the federal government must enumerate the number of people resident in the United States every 10 years. Individuals, people, it does not say citizens. Whether you have legal status in the United States or not, the census is supposed to count you. And as a result, it is also federal law that participation in the census cannot be held against you for purposes of deporting you or, or any sort of retaliation. So legally, the matter is airtight. Participation in the census does not endanger anyone's immigration status. It doesn't matter if you're undocumented, if you're a green card holder, if you have some other form of, of immigration status, or if you're a naturalized citizen or whatever, or, or a native born citizen. Participating in the census cannot be held against you in any way, shape, or form. That being said, people don't often or usually have you know, an understanding of all of the technical realities of census gathering. With the administration attempting to insert a citizenship question into the census, which the, the courts um, disallowed the administration from doing that, there was a fear that undocumented people would not participate in the census because they were they might be afraid that, you know, putting admitting to a, a government agent that they are in the United States without authorization would jeopardize their their um, situation. But um, that going forward, since the since the census in 2020 will not have a citizenship question, that should not be a concern to anyone. If you have undocumented people in your life in your networks that might be concerned about that, please uh, let them know that that's not an issue that they need to be worried about. Wonderful, thank you, Rashad. Next one is please review for those in the asylum process when they can obtain work permits and also what organizations are involved in assisting asylum seekers moving from detention to sponsorship. Two parts. Uh, when can people work in the asylum process? I think it is 90 days after they have applied for asylum, they get permission to work. So we have asylum seekers now throughout the country who have come through and they've asked for asylum. They have gone through the credible fear interview with the ICE a person at the border. They've probably been in and out of detention while they're waiting for their sponsor. And then eventually they make their way to the sponsor. So once they have applied with the courts for asylum, I think it's a 60 day wait. There was some question that the administration wanted to prevent them from being able to work. So that has been under discussion and I don't know where it stands. Generally, these things are brought up by the administration and then the lawsuits show up 
by somebody like the ACLU or the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, on behalf of the asylum seeker. So that, there's a little bit of question about the future of the ability of the asylum seeker to work. When I go to Arizona, I'm out in Green Valley, which is near Tucson. And so the second part of that question is, who takes care of the person after they have left detention, but before they go to their sponsors? Generally, what's happening now is they've been held by ICE. And at this point, there are a lot of families. This is going on with these are families who are coming north. In the beginning, the northward migration, as you know, was uh, generally single men who wanted to come here to work. But more and more, we're seeing women and women with children. So they're held in detention. But uh, eventually, at some point, ICE basically has to get rid of them from their detention center. And what we're seeing in Tucson and throughout uh, the border region is people are just dropping, the ICE is just dropping these people off, sometimes at the Greyhound bus station and sometimes with the nonprofits. In Tucson, it's Catholic Charities who runs a place called Casa Alitas. And that is an organization that literally is a, a shelter that takes people for two to three days uh, we know who the sponsor is going to be, but the sponsor has to supply money to move that family from Tucson, in this case, to the location. So uh, bus tickets have to be purchased or flights have to be purchased. And the people coming out of detention have very little money, if any. They have one set of clothes. So Casa Alitas will take folks in uh, either by picking them up at the bus station where they've been dropped, or if ICE drops them off at Casa Elitas, even better. And they feed them and they give them clothes. So there's a lot of clothes donations. Uh, and they make contact with the sponsor. Uh, there's some paperwork that needs to be done. And uh, basically, somebody coming out of detention will have a first ICE check-in scheduled within two weeks and uh, a court immigration date that's been set for them at the location where the sponsor is. So there are organizations across the border, like Catholic Charities, who run these shelters. It's heroic work because they never know on any given day if they're going to get 100 new clients or 50 new clients dropped at their doorstep. And there's just a big machine out there now of people supplying food, services, English as a second language, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the one I'm the most familiar with uh, is Casa Alitas as part of Catholic uh, Charity Services uh, out in Tucson. I don't know if, Rashad, you have other information about that process, but that's basically what I know about what's going on out there. Yeah, I just had a, um update on the, the work side of, of the asylum oh. process. Um, the administration is currently in the comment period for a regulatory change that would remove the stipulation that the administration has 30 days to process the um, applications of asylum seekers for work authorization. They want to lift that 30-day rule so that it's basically, it can be indefinite, the amount of time that asylum seekers have to wait to gain work authorization. And we're currently active in advocating uh. that. Um, in, in the Office of Government Relations. 
So we're saying they can work, but we're not going to have any uh, commitment as to how soon we could approve them. Exactly. This, is a, exactly. this is a great administrative way to get around allowing them to work. Okay. Right. Exactly. So yeah, so if, if there's not a rule, if the rule that these, these applications have to be processed in 30 days is removed, then the administration can sit on them for as long as yes. they want. Okay, okay. And I just wanted to add to the answer to that the question. So not all asylum seekers who are seeking asylum in this country are from Central and South America. There are asylum seekers from all over the world, um, right. many of whom are held in detention all across the country. So if you're not familiar with Freedom for Immigrants, that's a really important organization to be aware of. Freedom for Immigrants has a detention visitation network. I believe they were the first, they could be the only kind of national detention visitation network in the country. At least that's what they say on their website. And additionally, they have an alternative to detention program. So they are kind of piloting community sponsorship of detainees who've been released to seek asylum outside of detention. All of the things that I just mentioned are featured in our Supporting Asylum Seekers Toolkit, along with the information about a variety of other local accompaniment networks. So if you are near an accompaniment network that is doing detention visitation and sponsoring people out of detention through bond funds um, and posting bond, really important information will be in that toolkit. So do stay tuned for that. That should be released within the next few weeks from us. And I just would like to add as well that um, at the federal level, it is the policy of the Episcopal Church to advocate for alternatives to detention for mm -hmm. asylum seekers um, as well. So we're, we're active on that issue um, here in D.C. as well. And a follow-up question came through. Um, she said, I'm really asking what organizations find sponsors for those in detention? Part of what I just um, answered points to that. So the Standing Up for Racial Justice for a while was doing sponsorship of people out of detention. Freedom for Immigrants works on that. Various other accompaniment networks that are listed on Freedom for Immigrants and partner with them do that kind of work. Also, you can search for bond funds, immigration bond funds, many bond funds not only post bond to help immigrants get out of detention, but they also have sponsorship opportunities. So I, I can't go down the national list, but there are quite a number of organizations doing that kind of work. Thank you, Allison. I think we have time for one more question before we wrap it up. What chance is there for the immigration judge union to be successful in their attempts to no longer be under the DOJ? My guess is their attempts are not that great. I don't know that this is an issue that the general public is aware of, or if there's any pressure from the outside uh, to make this change. But I don't think it's likely. But Rashad, you may have uh, more information from the Washington perspective. Yeah, I would not hold my breath on that one, honestly, because expanding, expanded executive power is the world we live in, just from a, from a, from a separation of powers perspective. And this is not, this is true of, of all recent administrations. It's not unique to the Trump administration, but presidential administrations are reluctant to give up authority that they have. Um, and Congress is, has been for many years, very much willing and eager to cede authority that, that should rest with Congress to um, the administration. So, it's, it's very unlikely that we will have independent immigration courts anytime soon. Um, we certainly think it would be a good idea, for sure, given the fact that the administration, you know, they have a very, this is, this immigration is an issue that this administration, as we, we well know, um, has very strong feelings on and has, wants to, to steer the country in a certain direction. 
they are definitely not going to be interested in giving up control of the immigration court system. That's not, that's not happening. Thank you, Rashad. Sad note to end on, but I <laughs> appreciate the answer. Um, we wanted to thank you all so much for joining us today, and thank you so much, Allison, for all of your hard work to prepare this presentation and sharing such rich information. Um, we do encourage you all to stay in touch with Episcopal Migration Ministries and the Episcopal Public Policy Network. We are both part of the presiding bishop's staff, so we are colleagues and work together every day. Um, you can be in touch with us at our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org. On social media, we are at EMM Refugees. The video from today's presentation will be on our Vimeo channel, vimeo.com forward slash EMM Refugees. And please do join Partners and Welcome on our website, EMM, and then forward slash Partners and Welcome. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Have a blessed rest of your week, and we'll be in touch soon. Take care and bye-bye. Thanks for coming. Kendall, I'm so grateful to Allison for taking the time to do that for our audience. And I know from a lot of the folks who watched the live webinar and they let us know after the fact, so many people wish this just were a common part of civic education in our country. I think, I mean, even for myself, I mean, you and I work in an area within immigration, but none of the information that Allison presented to me was stuff that I just learned in school as part of the normal, normal curriculum. What about you? Oh, absolutely. I'm just so grateful that we have these opportunities, whether through webinars or virtual workshops, to share information that people might not know or they might think they know, and then they learn something new. So I think it's really exciting, and I'm really grateful that Allison gave us her time. And speaking of that, I would love people to join us for our upcoming virtual workshop. It's called What Now? Building Community Partnerships for a Changing Refugee Ministry. And it'll take place Thursday, November 7th from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And the registration link will be in the podcast notes. Um, in a political climate that has dramatically affected refugee arrivals and the operations of support agencies, how can we strengthen support for refugees already in the U.S. and continue our commitment of welcome? This virtual workshop will look at changing needs and opportunities for ministry beyond initial resettlement. We'll take a look at our gospel foundation and consider new ways to be loving neighbors and friends, exploring community partnerships, including how to develop them and collaborations for education and advocacy. And the workshop will include time for discussion of partnership, sharing ideas and Q&A. And it is limited to 12 participants and 24 observers. We welcome you to join in the work of welcome by making a donation to Episcopal Migration Ministries. No gift is too small and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. And make sure to follow EMM on social media for updates on our upcoming webinars, workshops, and opportunities. Um, we are at EMM Refugees. It's time to share the message of welcome loudly and proudly. Purchase an EMM t-shirt or bag and join us in proclaiming that you support refugees and you stand with EMM. It's thanks to our listeners and supporters that even in the midst of grave challenges, we are standing strong, building our network of supporters, strengthening our organization and our partners, and continuing to proclaim boldly and without ceasing that we support refugees. Go to custominc.com forward slash fundraising forward slash EMM fall 2019 and order your own t-shirt or tote bag today. Our theme song composer is Abraham Owenda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahamowenda.bandcamp.com. 
Thanks for joining us today, listeners. Until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home.